You're listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha. Thank you for being with us. This episode of the podcast contains my conversation with Bristol legend Crust. The stuff we were making, though, it was really experimental. We were coming from a bit of hip hop, a bit of rave, a bit of techno, and it was combining into something. It wasn't a scene, it wasn't a culture yet. It didn't have a name, but it, it just had this rough kind of sound. But it, it was pretty obvious to us that this is what we were going to be doing. Crust is one of the brilliant minds responsible for cultivating Bristol's jungle scene. His work with the live act Represent pushed jungle into new spaces. It brought the sound to new audiences and their debut album, New Forms, won the Mercury Music Prize in 1997. After a hiatus, Crust is ready to share with us his new album, The Edge of Everything. We spoke about the impact of cinema on his life and this record, Crust's commitment to wellness and disruptive patterns, the programme of creative masterclasses that Crust has developed. You're listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha and Crust joins me. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, how's it going? I'm excited to speak with you. Um, We are going to learn all about your new record. But before we do, I was wondering if you'd be up for taking me all the way back. This is a question that I love to ask most of the people that I interview because I feel like it gives such an insight into your growing up. Um, So please would you share with us your earliest memory connected to sound or music? Uh Um... I think the earliest um, memories I have of, of music will be Sundays, Sunday afternoons, dinner, and my mum putting on Motown while she's cooking and just sort of, you know, getting used to Gladys Knight in the Pips or um, Marvin Gaye or Stevie Wonder, listening to something like that. And then... And then the same day, later on in the evening, you'd have seven o'clock, you'd have the chart show, the top 10. So we'd sit there and listen to the radio to hear. There'd always be something in there that you you had to listen to the radio for because obviously there wasn't, wasn't so prevalent the way this thing's set up now. But, you know, you'd listen, just going to play the tune, it's not see what number it is this week, you know. And um, we'd listen and then... For me, later on, what what kind of happened was that um, I saw a film, I was about 14, I saw this film, Wildstyle. And in it, the film really centres around American hip-hop culture and how it kind of got to be what it is. You know, there's graffiti in there, there's breakdancing, there's just the whole kind of hip-hop culture. And when I saw that, me and my brother, we watched that. It was like, what did we just see? Do you know what I mean? It's like it's culture shock immediately. You know, I was a mod before that. I was into the specials. But as soon as I saw that, I was like, nah, I'm into hip hop now. <laughs> you know, but I remember sitting on the same gramophone. So the setup back there was like, you, you had the turntable, you had the radio and a cassette deck all in this whole one unit. And... 
so me and my brother, we learned to scratch by turning the on-off knob between radio and record. So when a, when something was on, oh sorry, the tape, sorry. So you play a tape, something you taped off the radio, and then you get a record. It didn't matter. It wouldn't, but you would switch between the record and the tape deck, and that's how we learned to scratch by going like on off, on off, on off. Um, so I think that was my earliest memory of like trying to, you know, be a DJ. But the music thing was always there. It was always in the background. You know, I grew up in a very musical household. You know, my mum was, you know, uh, into the whole Motown thing. My brother, I got an older brother, so he schooled us on the whole Motown thing. And then it was Funkadelic. And then it was mods and specials and two-tones. And then the whole electro thing. So my brother introduced us to all these things. So, you know, me, me and my mates were like just hanging out. And he comes in the room. He says, look, watch this video. We're like, well, what is it? He goes, just watch it. You know, we were like 14 and we watched that. And like I said, you know, I've had like three or four moments in my life when literally the light came on. And that was the first time I remember. And throughout the conversation, no doubt I'll tell you the other times, but they're like pivotal moments in my life where I knew without a shadow of a doubt that that was the, where, where I was heading. And when I saw that film, it's like, yeah, that's me. Mm. You mentioned um, that turning point. Uh, did it, manifest in like the way that you dress did you start dressing different as you went from mod into more hip-hop stuff yeah everything everything the way I looked the way I talked the way I walked you know hip-hop is a lifestyle it's culture like the same thing with with mods and two-tone but I think hip-hop's ideology was so deeply rooted in the being you know you know you're a mod but what do mods do <laughs> they just look cool, right? And wear pork pie hats and crombies and shiny brogues. But hip hop, there was a dance culture, there was a clothes culture, there was a language culture, there's a rap culture, there's an art culture. You know, it's an ideology. It's almost like a religion. You know, you get into, you get into. I'm still a b boy. I still, I still adopt b-boy mentality you know I brought b-boyism to jungle in the beginning I you know the way I approached jungle was from a b-boy perspective you know, it was very much around you know you know I used to sit in the studio and think what's RZA doing right now like how is he making beats you know what's he what is he doing I need to know and that's how I would approach making jungle I'd think about mm. how the hip-hop greats were sat in the studio and what they would be doing and I'd try and emulate that and I'd try and make my jungle sound like hip hop. Yeah, it was a very, very powerful thing that happened to a 14 year old kid growing up in where I grew up. <laughs> um, so from these Sunday afternoons listening to the chart show, I'm jumping a bit, but you had a top 10 hit in the late 80s. Um, tell me a bit more about that and the experiences that came along with it. Well, after we saw Wildstar, we decided the next day we were going to become this group. So we created a name, Fresh Four. And I remember standing in my mum's garden and there were about six of us. And we were saying, right, we're going to start this thing. Who's in? And like four of us, four of us said, yeah, we're in. The other two were like, oh, we'll wait and see how it goes. And I'm like, nah, you're never going to be in this crew. Like you're in now or never. And so, you know, four of us who decided to do it, we just, that was it. We started off in school. 
school gave us a back room. We started spray painting in there, putting paper down, ghetto blaster every Friday, charged on the door two pounds or two pence. A lot of money back then. And, uh, you know, that was our first hustle. We took the same philosophy to this club called Eagle House, a youth club down around the corner from where I grew up. And they were cool. They allowed us to use the spare room again. So we took our decks, did the same thing, spray painted the room, and then held parties in there, you know, once a month. We, as we were growing, we were learning more, more people were getting into it. We started all the breakdancing competitions, that type of thing. It just organically grew. One day we're walking, we hear about these squats in Bemonster, in this place called um, St. Luke's Road. Um, a friend of ours is already kind of in there and he goes, you got to come and check these guys out. They're like really cool. So we go and start hanging out with them and they go, well, we got a, you know, and so this is the pattern. We've got a spare room. <laughs> oh, great. Can we spray it up? And they're like, yeah, you do whatever you want. So we ended up putting our sound system in there, all our records, turntables, and we just started hanging out in a squat. And then one day they go, do you know, we've got like a, a scout hut at the, at the bottom of the garden. And we're like, no. So come and have a look. So they show us a scout hut in the bottom of the garden and we're like, we're going to hold parties in here. So we make a door, clean it up, put paper, uh, you know, cardboard on the floor, graffiti the walls, put tarpaulin on the roof and we start holding our own parties in there every month now. So every all the people from the other side of town, they come over now and they start hanging out and there's only a few crews, crews in Bristol, but most of the parties are on the other side of town and it's a distance for us to walk. So we're like, nah, we want to do this over this side. We want to get those guys to come over. And, you know, it's a big success eventually. But but doing those parties, there's a thing that you do as a DJ. It's like you try and create a trademark sound. And each one of us in the crew had their trademark. So my brother Flynn, he was like the scratch guy. He would scratch two records. I'd be the mixer. So I would just mix long mixes. And another guy, Judge, he was the same mixer. And then Sub, he was like a, a sort of scratch DJ as well, quick mixer. But while we were doing these parties, a big thing you would do, would you'd get an acapella record and you'd get like a, a tune, maybe, I don't know, house tune or something instrumental. And what you would do, you would mix this a cappella over these breaks or the, or the tune, house tune. And that would be your signature kind of thing that everybody kind of knew you for. So my brother Flynn, his one, he discovered this one, Wishing on a Star vocal. And um, and his breaks, Faso uh, Riding High with Funky Drummer. <clears throat> so he's like, oh, I think I can make this into a tune. And we're like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, I think I could... You know, I want to make a tune. It's like, oh, wow. Like, you know, we were like, that's deep. You know what I mean? We're like DJs. And to get to that next level, really, I mean, it's quite normal now saying it. But back then, when you were a DJ, you just DJed over people's records. If you actually dropped your own tune in the dance, it's pretty much over, right? Like, that's game, set and match, right? And so he's like, I'm going to make this tune. And, and we're like, yeah, right, that's, that's deep. So he works with Smith & Mighty, well-known producers back in the day, gave everybody, most of, most of the people in Bristol their first start. Um, they sat in the studio for a year and they made this tune and, you know, it was wishing on a star, right? And it was huge. I mean, it was like this, 
you know, none of us knew what was what what kind of happened really. When it got released, we got we got it signed to Virgin, and then when it got finally got released, it just went from forty to thirty to twenty, and it was destined to go to number one. I don't know what happened. There was a bit of a conspiracy theory around that. I'll tell you another time about it, but it kind of just took us all by surprise. You know, one minute we're these guys, you know, 18, 19 year old guys in a, in a squat in Bristol. <laughs> the next thing, you know, we're on top of the pops and we just got a massive check from Virgin and we don't know what to do. You know, they say, you got to make an album. Like we don't know how to make a record, let alone an album. And so this went on for a couple of months and then eventually they dropped us. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't have any experience of making a record. We tried to do something, but it didn't quite work. And then after that, really, it was um, kind of back to the drawing board. But this was the second time the light went on for me because I was in, we got to work in a big recording studio in London and I walked into the room and again, I just had that feeling. I knew exactly what was going to happen next. I said, I need to learn that, you know, if I'm going to be, if I'm going to do what I, you know, what, what I want to do next, I need to learn this. And it was like that obvious. And so when the dust settled, my brother had a sampler and I just lived in his back room for about two, three years until I, until I understood how to use the sampler. And then the computer came next, learning how to use Atari and, and Cubase. And that was pretty much the start, really, of how I kind of got my start in it. And then I kind of, you know, helped sub-learn it. And Dai was part of another crew that was learning it as well. And then Smith and Mighty gave us a back room in their studio. And then me, Sub and Dai, we would hang out in there most days and just push buttons, trying to figure out how to make music and what, what it was about, how to do it. That's kind of the early inceptions of, you know, my career. So it was very much like having a go rather than being taught or shown or anything like that. Well, you got to imagine back then the, the background of, of uh, England, Bristol. Um, there was nothing going on, like nothing. You couldn't, it, you know, I left school at 15 with a few qualifications. I knew that. I wasn't really going to be doing anything that school taught me. I, when I saw Wildstar, I knew that was going to be in my life. I didn't know how involved or what I was going to do. It's just, you just know. Um, I told my mum and she's like, that's cool, but you've got to have a backup. When I told my dad, he was like, don't be silly, go and get a job. So I knew he wasn't on my side. So I, I limited his involvement <laughs> in my life after there. But I knew, I said, cool, I'll go and get a job. So I tried for about eight months and failed at getting a job. It got so bad that I was even willing to work in a warehouse just pushing uh, those uh, wooden pallets around. And as soon as I walked in the room, the guy said, I just knew he was going to say no. So I just went through the motions. And then when I left, I took off my tie and I threw it over the river, into this river. And I was like, fuck it, I'm never gonna do this again. I tried, I went home, I said, mum, I tried, I tried it your way. I now need to give it 100% my way now. She's like, okay, do your thing. That was my commitment. I knew then uh, that was what I was gonna do. And so 
you know, Wildstar and being involved in hip hop was really understanding the culture and who you were going to be. Like being a b-boy is about, you know, it's almost like, because I study a lot of business now and I have done for the last 15 years, but b-boy, being a b-boy is very much like building a brand, you know, about it being authentic, original, creative, brand low. It's like, it's the business model, essentially. And what I got from it was this whole ethos and it's kind of like, you know, like I said, I took it religiously. I really took it on board. And, you know, I just looked at it from from a business point of view, from from a, from a like as a Bible. And I still use Wildstyle as the Bible. It's the blueprint as far as I'm concerned, like of how you build culture. And what I've known about building any groups, you build the culture first and then everything follows. And that's what we did in Fresh 4. We did that in Full Cycle and I've done that since with Disruptive Patterns and um, Ammo Life, my, my, my partner's uh, CBD company. And so I've seen how it works and this, it works the same all the time. I just changed the, the, uh, the content. And so when I saw what they were doing, it was like, well, what do I, what, who am I? So I'm gonna be a DJ because I tried breakdancing and I, I didn't like it. I wasn't any good with the spray can. I wasn't any good at rapping, but DJing, that was my sweet spot. I could do that really well. And then when it came to production, I, I enjoyed that really well as well. So it's really trying to master my art. And so I knew I liked production. So I found a studio and I started learning the techniques and then I just sort of built up from there. Smith and Mighty were our lo local producers. I was fortunate enough to be able to hang out with them, see how you did it for real, right? You know, these guys were making a living out of it. These guys knew how to to take the ideas from conception to actually release records. These are the guys I need to be around. So I hung around with those guys. And so it was very well structured and thought out. Like that was my career path. I knew exactly what I was going to do. I didn't think it was going to be something I would earn a living from though. I didn't have that thing thought out. I just knew that I was going to be a DJ. And then when I was making music, I knew I was going to be a producer. And I just sort of did that every day. That was it, religiously. Like me and Sub and I, we'd wake up, you know, um, and we'd just hit the studio. And we'd, you'd live in that studio space all day. You know, you'd eat there, you'd sleep there, you'd burn weed there. And that was it, that was your lifestyle. And we just did that for years, like eight or nine years until it became obvious that we were quite good at it. You know, we were starting to actually make tunes that you could play someone and then they could understand this is the beginning, this is a middle and this is an end. And it made sense. What the stuff we were making though, it was really experimental. We were coming from a bit of hip hop, a bit of rave, a bit of techno, and it was combining into something. It wasn't a scene, it wasn't a culture yet. It didn't have a name, but it, it just had this rough kind of sound. But it, it was pretty obvious to us that this is what we were going to be doing. The business of it came around later, but it was very clear that this is what we were going to be doing. Mm. So before the kind of structure and the business element um, developed, I would love to hear a bit more about that kind of raw energy as things were first starting to bubble and become exciting for you and the rest of the guys because this is like a sound that is to me someone coming to it much later and an outsider is so synonymous with Bristol and representing that underground sound of Bristol but um 
I'd love to hear more about what that energy was like at the beginning um, for you. Yeah, it was just like, it was just a couple of guys sat in a room, just pushing buttons, experimenting, making noise. You know, there wasn't a direction in the sense that we knew what we were doing. What we were trying to do was just find something that was us. You know, we grew up on American music and essentially, and then the mod thing happened, which was gem- was quite British and that was great as well, but it wasn't us. I didn't know how to play music. I wasn't musically taught. I, you know, I had a drum set and a bass when I was younger, but I didn't, I didn't naturally, you know, gravitate to it. I did like the sounds of those things and later on I would enjoy more of it. But when when I saw turntables and I saw what you could do with turntables, I was immediately attracted to that. When I went into a studio and I saw drum machines and keyboards and I could hear what was coming out of the speakers, it was like, ah, I can do that. I could see how people were doing it and I thought I could do that. And then I figured it out. And I think that that was the whole thing about it is like can you figure it out can you make it work and so that's what we were doing we were just trying to figure it out like I said you got to keep you got to keep referencing this whole thing against the backdrop of what the UK was going through at that time Margaret Thatcher was was in power high unemployment you know the race relations was at all time low youth culture was was forming rape illegal raves were the norm you know drugs were on an all-time high and people were frustrated and angry the promise was not being fulfilled and so there was a huge gap between the haves and the haves not and there was an even bigger gap between how you were supposed to close that you know, there was no, you know, education was was like a privilege. It's not like it's online now or, you know, online courses. The courses, like, for instance, I wanted to go to music college. It was five grand. It might as well have been 50 grand because I couldn't afford it back then. And so, like, that's the backdrop what we have to deal with. And so it's, this is the whole DIY culture. So I'm very much a kid of of that mentality where... You know, for like, we saw a film Wildstar. The next day we formed a crew. The next day we got the school in. Months later we got the youth club in. And, you know, there's such a thing in Bristol called the Bristol Blaggers, right? Where you're just used to blagging things. You just got the gift of the gab because you know you've got to get, you've got to get what you got to get, you know. And we hustled to get this warehouse together. We hustled together and got our speakers, the generator, everything and and that was our initial mentality this hustlers mentality and so when it came to making music it was the same mentality like how are we going to get a sampler how are we going to do it hustle 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 just make it work i don't you know one of the things that i learned there's not too much talking needed you know it's not like now everyone is concerned about something let's start a facebook group let's blog fuck all of that just go and do it Right, and that's kind of the era I came from. Like, just go and do it, and so that's what we did. We didn't know about. Listen, we didn't know how to use the sampler properly. We just figured it out. We didn't know how to use a mixing desk properly. We just figured it out. We didn't know how to wire a studio properly. We just figured it out. But in figuring it out, we created something new. 
Like we created something that other people weren't doing. We put the wrong wires in the wrong way. We put the wrong, you know, channel in the wrong speaker and it produced something. And we thought that was what it was supposed to be. Years later, it was wrong, but that's what created our sound. And that's what creates jungle, right? This whole thing about being experimental, being entrepreneurial, being creative, thinking outside the box and really having this I'm going to make it work attitude that even though we don't quite know how to do it, we're going to make it work. And so that was our ethos, just make it work, just trialing error. You know, the blueprint was make it work. You know, what else, what else are we going to do? And that was really it. Because if we didn't do music, we'd be on the streets kicking cans like everybody else. So that's why I keep referencing the, cult, the, the state of play at the time because there was nothing else to do. Nothing. There's no internet. There's no clubs. There's no, you know, courses to go on to do stuff for far and few between. You know, most of us would just hang out in people's houses, play records and wait for the weekend to go raving again. Lit, lit, that, that was literally it you know Bristol was always having a house party so you'd either go to a house party Thursday, Friday night you know and that was it you know if when when Wildstar and the whole hip hop culture happened it gave us meaning it made us see that you could be significant you just didn't have to be another black kid with a number and a doll card you know, we actually saw we could have self-respect. We could, we could make music, not so we could be famous. We could make music because that was a talent that we had. That was a skill set that wasn't being rewarded by the system. The system wanted us to be robots, to go and be a mechanic, to go and be a builder, to go and be a laborer, a plasterer. Nothing wrong with those things. But they didn't tell us that we could be music producers, DJs, singers, songwriters, entrepreneurs. They didn't tell us that. You know, we figured that out by ourselves. And now look, this whole industry has sprouted up around music colleges. There's a dime a dozen now. And they're all come from what we initially built ourselves. And so we proved our model works. <laughs> we proved it worked. Um, let's jump to Warhead because I feel like many of our listeners will be very keen to hear about that. Um you mentioned partying and raving. How did it feel to go from the studio to start to see how Warhead was being received in a party environment, like to see it actually function in a kind of club rave setting? What was that like for you? It's interesting you choose Warhead. There's a there's a really interesting story behind the whole thing. And when I tell it, most people are shocked. But the, the truth about Warhead is that nobody liked it for nearly a year. It wasn't the tune that everybody thinks it is now, where it's like this instant classic. It was a very painful year. <laughs> I made the tune in two days. Um, I was inspired because um, Di and Ronnie were in the studio and they made this tune called Mad Professor. And I was like, wow, that's heavy, man. I, I want a tune like that, that's heavy as that, and that can complement their tune. Because we, when we, you know, at, Full Cycle was a very finely tuned machine and we would bounce off each other. When someone made a batch of tunes, you'd be inspired to make your version of those tunes because you wanted it to fit in and work and stuff. And so I just went home and went to work. I had an idea in my head about the bass line. And I just sat in the studio and I came up with this whole thing. 
And I kind of work backwards. So my philosophy in the studio is two things really. One, don't think, stop thinking. And the other one is just do the opposite of what everyone else is doing. And so if you listen to Warhead, it's this eight or nine minute tune, does no drops. It has a ridiculous long intro and then this monotonous bass line that just is relentless. And it was completely opposite to what was going on there. So it took me two days to make the tune just from start to finish. It was like a quite straightforward process. It just kind of flew out of me. But then when I started to play it, I played it to the guys, everyone liked it, played it to London guys, and I was a bit like, uh, I'm in an R-ing and stuff. Um, but eventually everyone got on board, and so we set about playing it, and it was just clearing dance floors. It had this thing about it when people, you play it, in the mix, people would be into it because the last tune they probably liked, but then when, they, when the actual tune dropped, everyone stopped dancing. Like literally, they just stopped and they would look at you. And I, you know, I'd be getting death threats and <laughs> like people looking at me like you just fucked up my high. Why, why are you playing this shitty tune? It was really that bad for months, and it just wouldn't. It wasn't letting up. And so, three months in, it was the same thing. Four months in, it was the same thing. But I knew it was a tune. I knew, and we all knew it was a tune. It was just one of my biggest lessons in in uh, business, not just music in business. Cause it taught me the psychology of human, human behavior and how long it takes people to understand a new idea that was that became very useful later on but so eight months in still nothing nine months in a little bit of light a ray of light you know two or three people carried on dancing and they were kind of like going for it and i was like oh whew. you know was, you know <laughs> thank you it's you know very difficult for a dj to play it's all right when you play someone else's record and you clear the dance floor. When you're playing your own and you're seeing it's not working. And there are different levels of it not working either. There could be a production thing and you kind of get used to and understand why it's not working. But this tune was, it wasn't that, it wasn't that production thing. It was, the, it was such a different tune. It was completely different to what was going on. And so nine months in, same thing, little few more reactions. And then the magic happened at about 11 months. I don't quite know what it was, but I just think it was that relentless playing of the tune, carrying everybody just playing and playing. And then it, I remember playing it somewhere and just on the intro alone, the place went off. And I'm getting goosebumps now thinking about it. <laughs> it was like just the intro alone, just brrr, and it was like the whole place just went nuts. And then when the tune actually dropped, it was like re instant rewind. And that was it from that day onwards. You couldn't play the tune without having three or four rewinds like in one mm. set it was ridiculous and every dj would play it as well it wasn't like oh that dj has just played it the next dj would play it and it was just it just became the monster that everybody knows but it yeah like i said it was definitely not an overnight success and it was a very humbling painful pro process for a for a long time but worth it in the end i bet you're glad you stuck with it there oh for sure i think it's a track that a lot of ravers have a personal connection to and they kind of connect it to like a specific moment in time when they hear it today. Has anyone shared anything like that with you? It's definitely in a coming of age tune, I would agree. And I think that I'm just reading comments on, you know, YouTube and stuff like that. It's, it's very powerful, the experiences that people have had with it. 
And, you know, for me, it made my career, it changed my life. You know, that track changed the tra trajectory of my career. I was going on a certain level up until then. And, you know, I had a name for myself and making different tunes. But when that tune came out, it completely changed the game. It changed my life and it changed a lot of producers' approach to music as well. They didn't have to play by the rules. And that's kind of what I was trying to do. I was trying to, you know, we were doing that a lot at Full Cycle. And that's the whole... And listen, so that track is a direct correlation between b-boyism and my ethos and jungle, the direct correlation. Everything about that track is b-boy. The beats are all from hip-hop tunes, the attitude is hip-hop, and the originality is what you get from being a b-boy. So it's like this whole idea of what do... What, what I, what I do and where I come from and what I am is embodied in that track. bit about represent and um something that's come up for me since i've been speaking to you is that you have this sense of like building companionship around you and like going through these experiences and these adventures with others um is that something that you kind of always wanted to do always wanted to have like a crew around you is that important to you i think that just generally happens and, and you get that from you know the band scenario from looking at the specials, you know, the specials to me when I first saw them, they were this multicultural crew. Everyone called them a band. It was like, no, that's a crew. Look at them. You know, that's like the area I grew up in. You, you, you know, you, where I grew up in groups like that, groups of black, white, Indian, Chinese, and we all hung out together. And for me, it was like, that was normal. So when I saw the specials, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And then Wildstar, yeah, that makes sense. It was black Puerto Ricans and whites. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. I could see it. So I always aspire to have those type of relationships. Do you know what I mean? Like those groups, that's where I feel most comfortable. That's where I feel like we're sharing each other's ideas, backgrounds, cultures. Um, you know, when I met Di, he was from Cornwall, Barnstable and Devon. And he had this different outlook on the world, totally different. He went to Steiner's school and I he would be telling me stuff, do you know what I mean, about his upbringing, and it was like, wow, fascinating, and same thing with Sav, Sav grew up in Oxford, um, he grew up with his environment, with his, his, you know, his family, it was the same thing, and then meeting Ron was the same thing, and then we'd all, we'd go to these parties in Bristol separately, and not knowing each of us would be go there, and then there'd be this thing called St Paul's Carnival, where it was this big multicultural event, like, like not on hill but it was just mixing pots and so I used to get asked this question a lot like which was the best party you played at and it's like it was never about the best party for me it was always about the event in the sense that I'd enjoy carnival I'd enjoy festivals where you'd go and it was just a mixture of mountain pot of people like that's where I'd really thrive and, and really um, 
you know, that's what I would really, really enjoy. So, you know, I try and just bring that wherever I went. Because to me, it made sense. You know, we live in a multicultural environment. And even though we, we weren't fully represented in the UK around, um, around that idea, the groups were still multicultural. You know, there were still pots of people that were still multicultural. And so for me, yeah, it just made sense. You need variety. You need to have different experiences because that's what makes culture, right? That's what makes scenes. And so I saw it firsthand. And so when we did Fresh Four, it was very much like that. And then we did Full Cycle. It was very much like that. We had a big team, you know, that organically came together of people that shared the same ideas. Then Represent kind of took that mantle to a whole nother level. But I think Represent did it in reverse. It kind of inverted it in the sense that we brought together different audiences because we were an experimental kind of band that that played at 170. I'm not sure you could say it was drum and bass or jungle. I'd, I'd, I'd argue that, but we played at about 170 BPMs. And it was the crowds that came to see us. I think they may have heard about this electronic experimental music, but they were used to seeing a band format but the music came out of it wasn't the typical band music. And I think most people, when they saw us, they, oh, I recognize that. There's a bass player, there's a drummer, there's a guy on a keyboard, and there's two vocalists. I recognize that, but I don't understand the music that's coming out. But it's interesting. And when I saw the crowds, they were all, again, multicultural. And so I think what represents gift was and, and ability was to really flip it on its head and play this music that we were we were experimenting with. We actually we were able to break it down into its raw elements, play it back live, and get this feedback from an audience who may or may not have known about Jungle. But then they would go and research, oh, that's Ronnie Size, I'll go and listen to his records. Oh, that's Crust, I'll go and listen to his records, and Die and Sub, D Products, and so on and so forth. We just converted these people because before then they might not have known about jungle or jungle bass, and so I would say that represent had this ability to just go into certain places where jungle DJs couldn't go, but a live band could. A live band is a live band; it's a show. Most people, you know, when we when we went when we went to Japan the first time and we played <laughs> like. We played the first song. We played the first song normally anywhere and it would go off. Everybody in Japan just stood there like, and just like quiet and then just started clapping and we're like, okay, <laughs> this is different. And uh, so, and interestingly enough, we had the same experience about two, three years before then. We, um, we DJed across America. So Die and, and Dynamite DJed. They opened up for a rock band called uh, Soul Coffin and the drummer of uh, Yuval Gabe, he was um, just into jungle. He, on tour in England, he went to Camden Market, picked up all these cassette tapes of jungle, 
took him back onto the tour bus and started playing them to his guys and they they always like they loved it. So from that, one of the tapes was a full cycle tape. So from that, he got in contact with us. Dynamite and Die toured the first half of the tour in America. And then I finished it off. Me and Dynamite finished it off. But same thing. We go into these venues. And these are big venues, right? This is the biggest, some of the biggest venues that I'd ever played in, especially to non-jungle crowds. So you go in there and you play this music. And for the first half an hour, you're just getting death stares. Like, and then slowly you're seeing people trying to move to the music. And by the end of the set, people are jigging, dancing, really getting it. And... That's what we were seeing across the board, this whole thing with the music, the energy of the music, the vitality of the music, the, 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 the way that Dynamite would, would complement the, the vibes and host and celebrate and make humour and, and bring this different element into what we were about. And people got it and you could see them get it. And that's what represent, represent was the extension of that. It was the live version of that where you could go into a venue, people would be 50-50. Some people would come because they were hardcore junglists and they wanted to see what represent was. The other people were like, had heard about represent. They'd seen us win the Mercury Music Prize, for instance. And they were like, wow, what is this thing? You know, we've seen them on the front page of all these magazines and blah, blah, blah. We want to, we want to go and check it out for ourselves. And so, that was the evolution of that project. And then in 2008, you took this kind of conscious step away from the limelight. Um, talk me through that period and what you did to take care of yourself, what you learnt, and if there's anything that you'd want to pass on to new artists in terms of like wellness and balance when navigating the creative industry. Well, it was I started music at 14. So from 14 to 35 my feet didn't touch the ground. So I know it sounds nuts. Most people don't don't get that. But I started literally for 14 in school, learning to DJ breakdance. Um, 16, 17, I was already DJing out in you know youth clubs. By the time I got to 19, we had a top 10 hit. And then... I started producing again, learning to produce. And 25, we started Full Cycle. And then that was it, really, this whole mad journey from there. And so there was no breaks. There was no breaks. I didn't, you know, I lived as this guy crust from then till about 35. And it was like, you know, who who's Kay? Where's Kay to? Where's, where's, where's Kirk? Like... You know, and it was this whole thing around, you know, we did everything we could do as a crew. You know, we lived, the, we actually really lived the dream. You know, we built a business from nothing. We made money, we bought houses and cars, we had the lifestyle, we, you know, we traveled around the world. And for a guy that was, who left school with with minimum qualifications and he couldn't even get a job pushing pallets in a warehouse, I had a pretty good run at it, you know, so I was super grateful for that. But there was just something missing and it, it was starting to sort of gnaw away at me for years and I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but it just didn't feel right for a long time. You know, I was, we were traveling, we were, we were, you know, it just became not. it became like a job, you know, and I could sense I wasn't enjoying it anymore. 
the music wasn't coming out of me the same way it was. I'd reached this plateau where I was just going through the motions. I had bills to pay, so I was just doing it for that. Um, music was slowing down. I wasn't enjoying it. And, you know, the represent thing probably just took it, took the final piece of energy out of all of us because friendships frayed because of that. We spent too much time on the road. You know, we were like, I think we probably spent about three years on the road. And before that, me, Ronnie and Di, no, me, Ronnie and Dynamite, we initially toured for full cycle for, for years. Like we were the first ones to tour Europe. You know, you gotta imagine like Jungle and Drum and Bass was brand new. Like it was a new thing. And we kind of got, we we were like the ambassadors of it in a sense. Like, you know, f you know, Full Cycle, Metalhead, V, Ram, all those early virus, you know, all those early um, labels. We were the blueprint, you know. We would be carted off to go and play these festivals or these gigs in the middle of nowhere to like 200 people who were fanatical. And we did that circuit for years until you go back to the same place and you pay in front of like, 30,000 people and like we saw this evolution and we we worked it and we worked it and we worked it we did all the festivals and we kept doing all these cycles and they got bigger and bigger we did first of all we did England then we did Europe then we did America then we did um, the Asia tour and then you 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 do the whole thing again next year and that was constantly going around and around just as DJs and then when represent happened we did it again as represent but even with represent it was it just felt I think it probably was m more relentless because it was around a band and an album and a release and it just felt more relentless and with all your mates as well it took a toll on your friendships and on your life and on your health you know the first tour we did represent was like the great rock and roll swindle literally we were like punks just going crazy on this tour bus, doing everything textbook. You know, Mark, Malcolm McLaren might as well have been our manager at that time. And we just, it was textbook rock and roll. We did everything that they say you should do. By the end of the tour, the tours that we do, and three years later, we were literally vegetarians, vegans, <laughs> drinking water, bus Olympics, training, meditating, complete change. And it became apparent that we couldn't, we didn't have anything left in the tank. And so we stopped touring and stuff. We had conversations about what we were gonna do with the business. We hadn't put any music out on Full Cycle for quite a while. And we set about making more music. It just wasn't there though. And for me, the direction had changed about the business and what we were doing and where we were going and where we were heading. So I just made a decision. I, I thought, I need, I need a break from this. This isn't what I want to do. This isn't where I want to go. And I stepped out. And that was probably the hardest thing I've ever done because, you know, that was my family. That was a business that I'd built with those guys. You know, we'd, we'd slept on people's floors for years. We'd shared jacket potatoes and cheese and beans for years. And we built up to 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 something that won the Mercury Music Prize that doesn't happen every day you don't get that type of camaraderie but when it went wrong and it was starting to go wrong it was harder to stay in it to try and fix it well everybody was sort of jumping ship and I was like the last to leave but 
it was a very difficult decision. It wasn't something that I came to lightly. And so there was a lot of, lot of, lot of, um, it was a big decision because, you know, it wasn't just my health. It was men my mentality that deteriorated as well, the spirit of it. You know, when your spirit's down and out, you don't, there's no one around you. What, what, you've, what you learn quickly in, in, what I learned quickly in our business is that you're part of a well-oiled machine that people need you to keep going so that they can pay their mortgages. And when you realize that, it becomes very um, hard to keep going when you know you need a break and someone says, no, you just got to keep going. You got to fulfill these dates. No, and this speech, you know. And so I moved on. I stopped and I just had to have this time by myself to figure out who I was again. And it was good. It was hard for the first couple of years, but eventually I started studying the books. And one question that I kept getting asked on tour was, how did you start Full Cycle? How did you start becoming a DJ? How did you start becoming a, la a label? How did you start producing? And I couldn't answer that question for years. To me, it just felt like a silly question. I, I felt like saying to some people, how do you not know how to do that? Because it, for me, it was such a normal thing, but I get it now because, you know, I started at 14 and it was, you know, by the time I got to 21, I already had the top 10 hit. I already uh, was quite proficient in the studio. And so I, I slowly began to understand everyone doesn't have those opportunities. Everybody doesn't get to stand in, you know, Smith & Mighty studio and learn how to use the equipment, learn to be around managers, learn to be around labels is quite a privileged position to be in. I didn't realize that. So what I did was I actually sort of took a step back and started to think about if someone wanted to do this, what would they do? How could you teach somebody this? And so I thought about it. I said, well, what did you do? How did you do it? And so then I started to just draw it out, make diagrams, make, you know, posters and books and I just started to read and study stuff I didn't understand I'd read and I study and eventually this whole thing came out which is now disruptive patterns and it's really a philosophy an ideology of how to think in a certain way to get what you want and it's around personal performance it's around personal development and it's heavily um, inspired by business psychology and you know leadership in creativity like how do you use your own creativity to create something unique to help you stand out which is firm which again comes from b-boy from being a b-boy and what hip-hop was in the beginning about being unique how do you stand out how do you create something that makes you original makes you um you know, get what's your USP around it. And so when you look at the origins, and so that's what I did. I looked at the origins of what, what hip hop was about and being a B-boy was about, and it was very much rooted in that ideology. So the next step was like, well, how do successful businesses operate? And you look at successful businesses and they operate in exactly the same way. And then you start studying business and what's the best business practices. Okay, then, then what is... Um, how do you put these all together so it actually makes sense so that when I can I can speak to someone who was just like me coming up and they can use these skills without having to go to business school or or read some of these complicated books because I have a saying that where I come from people don't read books with dolphins on the front and that just means that people people where I grew up they're not interested in you know the the deeper side of 
of like all the philosophical side of it until they understand what the results are. So for them, it's like, well, I just want to be a DJ. I can teach you how to be a DJ, but on the, in the process of that, I'm going to explain to you the philosophical, psychological aspect of it so that if DJs doesn't work out, you have the framework to think differently as well. And so that's been my approach to building from that perspective. It's like, now I know I have the skill set to think differently, to be... Uh, to think laterally, to be unique, to be original, to create a project from that perspective that stands out and then stands the test of time because that's what we've always done. That was the blueprint of what what um, Jungle was. That's the blueprint of what Full Cycle was. And that's the blueprint of what Fresh Four was. And so once you get that and then you understand how you can build your you as an artist from that perspective then you're winning because what you don't want to do and what I don't teach people is how to DJ I don't teach people how to make music I teach people what to think like if you not what to think but how to think sorry so if you're able to think constructively critically if you're able to understand how to break break something apart and put it back together you will be able to adapt and be resilient because the landscape and the canvas, right, is there, right? You just need to figure out how to use your God-given tools and be resourceful. That's the part that's not taught, you know? And so my thing was really, how am I using my own skill set? How do I put that together? How do I make it make sense for me? And then how do I, you know, con consistently live my life from that perspective? Mm. So you have shared some pieces of musical work in between 2008 and now but um this new project is the first kind of full length that we've heard from you in over a decade um so before we dive into hearing all about it what would you say has changed in your creative approach to making a full length project well the disruptive patterns has played a massive part in my thinking process you know it's really understanding the psychology and behavior and the spirituality aspect of it and it was it was there in the beginning but not as prevalent um i think one of the biggest things that i've taken forward in my career was really the whole widescreen approach and so building my my music from back then i had this idea that i had this idea that I would I would really look at film as a medium to to be inspired, and so the disruptive patterns. How that what what disruptive patterns was really in, informed me was that every industry and everybody has something of value, and they might not be of an industry you like, and they might not be doing work that you like. But if you study them and you understand how they do what they do, then you can extrapolate the best and put it into what you do. And so towards, like the, the, one of the biggest decisions I made when I was getting back into music was not to do any more sort of war-heady style musics or follow the vision. I was really going to focus more on the soul emotion side and what I do, the true story side. And I really looked at that and said, okay, 
if if I'm going to go down that road, I need to study film. So that's what I did. I studied film. I started to read a lot of books about film. I started to look at uh, directors and really like watch their films from a different perspective. Like, how do you take someone from one scene to another? How do you take someone through an experience? How do you create tension and how do you create something that's unexpected? And so I was devouring, I loved films before that, but I really started to devour them in the sense that I really trying to understand that process, the storytelling, and with disruptive patterns as well, it really helped me deconstruct the thinking process and look at the way people think instead of looking at what they do. I want to know what you're thinking before you applied that. And so I would do read loads of interviews and try and understand. And so this narrative came around, this whole thing about, you know, there's this journey that people go on and they go to find themselves and they have to travel and then there's this call and there's a refusal. And I just thought, hold on a minute, this is what I've been going through. <laughs> it's like, I just spent 10 years in the wilderness trying to discover who I am. It's like, there's a, there's a story there, right? So I just really tried to understand how to drive this narrative of this story, but do it in a way that it was like everything else I've done, but really taking it to the next level. And so diving in to make the album really took about two years, three years to just research really, reading and studying, meditating and visualizing, using all the business tools that I was that I was teaching other people, but I started to, I was using them more effectively on building this project, looking at mood boards, looking at, you know, soundscapes, looking at, you know, creators who were doing stuff differently, people who would inspire me. And I created a mood board, but it was like, ended up being a mood wall. And so this was something that I was quite used to doing in my other studios. I'd have a wall of power and I would sit there and I would look at all these images and I would meditate with this image, with these images in mind. So imagine it's a 20 feet wide wall, maybe seven to 10 feet high, and it would just be covered in images of inspiring people, inspiring comments, just loads of things. And I would just sit there and I would soak it up and it would have ideas on it, plans on it. And it would really be about, you know, what is the, the soul of this project? What is the, the idea? What makes this project unique? How do I, you know, create a record that's still relevant today that people want to hear, but that's not a record, that's a journey and it's an experience. And I want people to, you know, one thing that I decided, I want people to, when they when they come, you know, you have that feeling, you just come out of a cinema and you like, what the fuck have I just watched? I wanted that to, I wanted people to have that experience when they listen to my record, like what the fuck have I just heard? And so for me, it was like, it just took a long time really to sort of conceptualize that. And then when I finally started to attack it, like what were the tools to actually do that? So it was like really going into researching lots of synthesizers, old ones, lots of sample techniques and just tools and really just figuring out who's the best at making these sounds and what do they do? A lot of the people I studied were nothing to do with music. It was mostly to do with film, engineering, astronauts, uh, psychology, spirituality, consciousness, you know, um, and business, you know, I really look at certain things 
and you know I try and understand why someone was doing something what's the purpose behind it what's the result that they get and how it affects culture and so I'm looking at the same thing in my music you know I want to know why Damon Hirst created a 50 million pound diamond crusted skull I like I want to know why he was thinking what was he thinking when he was doing that you know I want to know why Christopher Nolan made Inception you know like how come it took him 10 years to create the idea and, and then and then then visually do it like what was he thinking I want to know why Stanley Kubrick made The Shining you know why did you take um what's his name's book and then completely rip it to pieces and create your own story arc around it you know I want to know why Joseph Campbell sat down with George Lucas and and helped him come up with the myth of Star Wars and why is Star Wars this cultural myth that I watched when I was 10 years old and last night I sat down with my son and we watched you know Star Wars the Resistance and he's watching it and I'm like you got to understand son how relevant this is and he's like no daddy I want to watch Paw Patrol <laughs> like no you have to get this is a Star Wars kid and so for me it's like I'm trying to understand why all these things work the way they do what's the relevance what's the purpose why do they drive culture and it's like I'm sitting in my studio and I'm not trying to do any of these things. I don't want it to drive culture. I don't want it to do anything, but I am inspired by these things. And I want my music to to tell the story and I want it to mean something a bit more than a Friday night set. Do you know what I'm saying? And so my main vision and goal is to give someone an experience and if they can go into the ride with me, and they can f flow through that hour and a, hour and a bit of of the story and come out with questions. I think I've done my job. Mm. That definitely comes across when I was listening, especially the cinematic influences and creating that level of vastness and space, um, which I definitely associate with film. And tell me a bit more about working with the, the director Michael Williams um, and this track "Anti Gravity Love." So Michael, I've known for quite some time now, and we, we've been talking about working together on, on, on a project for a while now. Um, and um, I went to LA to, to, um, to talk to him about a project that we got kind of, it, just, we, it was like we just needed to cement something into, into reality you know we had these ideas and then he said look I'm working on this short film thing and you know I want you to do the music and I said look well just I said let's do something different this time you know I said send me the vocal just the vocal that idea that you got and then I'll build a track around that and then you can make the film around that and he said great well let's do it but he had the idea for the film he just needed the soundtrack to it and I said okay so let's do that then so he sent me the vocal. He wrote it out. He got an actor to to do the to do the vocal performance. Um, <clears throat> and then when I heard it, it was like I know exactly what to do with this. It was like I'm gonna do that, 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 and boom. So three days later, the the track was finished, and I sent it back to him, and he was like, "Oh yeah, wicked, great. Let's do let's do this." And I went backwards and forwards, fine tuned it, and I was like. This has to go on the album. <laughs> it was like, Mike, come on, what, what are you saying? He goes, great, love it, let's do that. So we put it on the album. Then 
he we he he's been he's been putting together the the short film for it ever since and so there's a short story that's that's sort of developed around it and you know it's a perfect collaboration you know michael's a great filmmaker you know we've come together and we've created something that exemplifies what the whole project's about in that one track you know it's a film it's a movie you know and this is part of the the story anti-gravity love which is like you know this adventure that the the the, the protagonist is going through that's part of it you know there's 11 other scenes in in the film that tell the story which we've just got this you know audio story that is very very powerful mm. i think sci-fi has kind of been coming up a lot um as we've been talking and it's also just like eerily fitting for the time we're living through right now with the pandemic how much is this record in direct correlation to what is happening in the world right now well it's called the edge of everything <laughs> so it was very much around recognizing that we are on the edge of everything and there isn't there you know 20 years ago you could probably say it's the poll tax or you could probably say it was you know um illegal raves uh or you could probably say it was uh you know fascist movement and these things would come up and down and they would ride and then they would uh disappear i think in the last seven years definitely the last five years it's been pressure everywhere you look there's been no relief you can't escape it especially with the internet and social media and it's just been escalating and escalating and escalating and society has been figuring out ways to cope with it we haven't solved any problems we've just figured out ways to cope with it and that coping strategy unfortunately has has got hasn't had the release valve it needed but it's actually now turned into something else and so you mix all of these things together and then you bring in executions on television of children, black children. And then you escalate that to cops doing it to adults, black adults, and getting away with it with impunity. And then you add on to their quote-unquote terrorism. And you add on to that. I could go on all day what you add on to it, but the point I'm trying to make is most people are looking at these things in isolation. We are in the middle of World War Three. World War Three was never meant to be the threat of nuclear war. It's always going to be the battle for the minds. They've created a worldwide situation that has shut down the planet, controlled everybody. If you look at that just as it is, from a from a psychological exercise that's war so of course i'm a product of all of that i i'm i'm not immune to it i read the news i have social media i have things on my wall that i want to talk about and i want to explain i'm coaching i'm mentoring still my students are asking me what's going on i do my pod my podcast adapt the canvas 
I don't get political, but my thing on it is, what's the solution to this? You know, how am I going to voice this? And so first and foremost, I'm an artist, so I create art. So that's what that is. This isn't about me trying to make tunes for the weekend. I have to auditorily explain my position. And that's what the edge of everything is. I'm telling you, we are at the edge of everything. But that's just one side of the coin I've talked about. What's the other side of the coin? Well, there's some amazing shit going on because of this. Technology, although it's not being used to its full advantages, it's been able to report lots of things. Racism isn't getting bigger, it's just getting filmed. And so that's because everyone's now got a phone in their pocket. So now we're seeing all these injustices, you know, we're seeing this type of communication because of the technology and the way that that's freeing people, the way it's informing people and the way it's bringing people together in a way that it's never been able to do. So on the flip side of the edge of everything, we're seeing a new type of communication. We're seeing a new type of community building. We're seeing a new idea, a new ideology, a new attitude. We're seeing people not just taking these gadgets for face value, they're actually being able to hack them and use them for something positive, for something that's going to inform people, something that's going to help share, spread the message, awaken people, you know, and get people to start thinking differently. On the one side, yeah, the edge of everything seems like it's the, I'm talking about the end and it's chaos, and, but actually I'm talking about the other side of the coin where it's the opportunity. And so let's take it back to being a b-boy. Let's take it back to the business. What is the opportunity in all of this? You know, how do you look at this from, from a perspective like, okay, that's what's going on. What's the opportunity? And if we look at the way that the world has been formed over the last hundred years, some of the biggest businesses have been formed in these type of conditions. And so if we now look again at what's actually happened in the last 12 months, there's some interesting business models have been created because of the limitations. And that is the beautiful thing about human beings. We do operate amazingly with adversity. You know, when our backs are against the wall, we do come up with something interesting. We do find a way through. We have not just sat around and taken this pandemic for what it is. There are people out there studying in it, trying to understand, is it real? What's going on? Why are we going through all these measures? What are the solutions? And they've been super creative. In the fallout from, from that, unfortunately, though, the music industry has been hit hard and they haven't been able to really understand what to what the how to counter it, what the solution to that is. And so something that's really been interesting is the way that people have been doing live streams, the way that people have now been able to put clubs back on but have seating and limit the numbers. It's like they're still trying to figure it out. And so moving forward, I'm optimistic that, you know, entrepreneurial minded people will find a way to um, solve that. It's just that it just takes time, you know, and what and what the whole idea about the edge of everything is an exercise into doing something different. You know, it's a very bold album. You know, I've heard people describe it from, you know, really dark, apocalyptic to really, you know, inspirational and cinematic. But the, the reality of it is it's an exercise in being unique and being different and still being able to um take people on that journey 
on a personal journey. You don't have to play the game to to make a record. You don't have to play by the rule. And I'm saying all those things, and I'm actually living by it, and I'm remembering how to do that, and I'm, you know, taking those ideas forward. But first and foremost, I had to write that piece of music to symbolize that. I don't want to be saying these things and not do it. It's like, here's a piece of music that tells you a story of how you could potentially get through this situation, and it's by switching off. You don't have to listen to the narrative because it's life still goes on. The universe still goes on. You know, you know, we're all tuned into the narrative and everyone feeds off of each other. But when you stop and you pull back, something amazing happens and it's called your unique self. Like your story wants to be told. And when you tell your story, it inspires other people to tell their stories. And it's like, well, you did that in this period? It's like, yeah, I did. I I was able to just be who I was. Well, you know, weren't you afraid that no one was going to like it? But that's not why, it's not the reason you do anything. You know, you are your being and we want to know your story. If one person reads that story, that's a success. Because you did what you believed in. You stood by your guns and you did what was innately unique about you that's inspiring we all want to do that because that's what's going to change the world not everybody you know running around um repeating the 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 official story that's not that's not that's not how the universe works the universe revolves novelty uniqueness you know the sameness gets beaten out that's why that's why that's what that's why it's called evolution because <laughs> it wants something new you know when something novel works it creates more of it. it doesn't create more of the same you know this too much of the same and you just it just dies out it can't produce itself it wants uniqueness it wants novelty it wants creativity it wants something that's willing to you know be different yes and i think that when people sit down to take in your album they can sort of bear that in mind um and it can be the soundtrack to their inspiration for getting through these next few months. So, Crust, thank you so much for bringing me into your world and giving me a bit more insight into the record. Um, and yeah, thank you. Cool. That's uh, good fun. Enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.